Psalm 41. The text reads like this. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. There's a short playlet called the Long Silence. And it goes like this. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, an African-American boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer? She murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light. Where there was no weeping or fear. No hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. 
a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a disabled child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each, other, with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. A couple of summers ago, we walked through a selection of Messianic Psalms. The Messianic Psalms are those Psalms that the New Testament authors cite in reference to Jesus Christ. And we resume that series tonight and come to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is a lament psalm. It's a psalm in which... David, our author, pours out his bruised soul before God. And we can sum up the psalm using David's own words in verse 10. Be gracious to me. That in view of his broken heart, in view of his sick body, in view of his enemies who surrounded him, and in view of his friends who had betrayed him, David prays, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. And this was the psalm that Jesus took upon his own lips on the night that he was betrayed in the upper room on the night before his, uh, before his crucifixion. Judas Iscariot left the disciples and left Jesus there in the upper room to betray him. And in John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus said, The scripture, Psalm 41, must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So that if you have ever asked the question, Where is God in my pain? Where is God in my suffering? Where is God in my loneliness? Where is God in my abandonment? Then Jesus' citation of Psalm 41 tells you, I am in it with you. I am no passive bystander. I taste it with you. Jesus does know what it's like. In other words, because Jesus has been there too. And so this is a psalm 
for the hurting. This is a psalm for the broken. This is a psalm for the damaged. But as we walk through it, we'll find ourselves walking into the arms of the one who has been there. We're going to see first the blessing on the benevolent. The blessing on the benevolent. Look at verses 1 to 3. David writes, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Now, why does Psalm 41 open with a sevenfold blessing on those who consider the poor or the weak, as that word there can be translated? Well, here is why. Because David had considered the poor. But he found himself in this moment without the blessings that God had promised. You see that when you read it from top to bottom? David wrote Psalm 41 when he was on his sickbed. And so he recounted God's blessings that God had promised to those who considered the poor. But he recounted them from a distance. He wanted the promised deliverance in the day of trouble, verse 1. He wanted God's protection, verse 2. And for God to keep him alive, for others to call him blessed, for him not to be given over to the will of his enemies, for him to be sustained on his sickbed and restored to full health, verse 3, because that is what God had promised to those who considered the poor just as David had. And that disconnect... That disconnect between what God had promised David and where David actually was is the same disconnect that can so often accompany us in our lives. A disconnect that forces us to say, God, where are you? Lord, be gracious to me. Maybe you're here tonight and you are at an impasse in your life, you have an almost impossible decision to make. And so you have reassured your soul with Proverbs chapter 3 trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. But it's been three months and you feel like He hasn't directed your paths at all. And so you bow your head in prayer and you ask and you say, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Or perhaps there's turmoil in your home. And so you've strengthened your heart with Proverbs 22 that says, train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But there is a giant disconnect between that verse and that child who's breaking your heart. So you begin to cry with David, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Or perhaps like David, you're unwell. And so with wings like an eagle, you have flown to Psalm 103 that says, he heals all your diseases. But six months later, you find that you're still unwell. And so you pray, oh Lord, be gracious to me. Friends, even in that, Jesus does understand. 
What do I mean by that? Well, who is the blessed man of Psalm 41? Who is the blessed man of the Psalms? Well, it's Jesus. Did Jesus consider the poor? Jesus became poor. Jesus fed the poor. He, he healed the poor. And so if there's anyone who could claim God's promised blessing on those who consider the poor, it would surely be Jesus. And yet Jesus suffered for 33 years. The order in his life was suffering first, blessing later. And he had entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, should we be surprised if the order is the same in our lives? Suffering first, blessing later. No, instead of being surprised, let us trust and and obey anyway. Let's follow in the footsteps of the man of sorrows, even in the disconnect between what is promised and what now is, knowing that Jesus has been there and walks with us all the way through it. And you know, friends, I really do need to trust us to, uh, urge us rather, to, to trust and obey. Because there's nothing that gives us a license to sin quite like hardship does. Isn't that true? So easy to feel that you've got a a right to slack off at work because your boss is a nightmare. So easy, or some of you perhaps, to flirt with that colleague because the fire has gone out in your marriage. To stop loving your child because he disrespects you. But if Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly then who are we to do any different who are we not to trust who are we not to obey whether in the valley or in the mountaintop and one of the ways that we can do that one of the ways that we can trust and obey is by considering the poor exactly what we're told here why why does god promise a blessing on those who consider the poor or who consider the weak well because they share his heart you all heard me read psalm 68 this morning where god is described there as father of the fatherless and protector of widows is god in his holy habitation god settles the solitary in a home and leads out the prisoners to prosperity And so there's the blessing on the benevolent. But then second, we're going to see the curse of the calloused. You see, in David's illness, he prayed there in verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. If there is any connection at all between David's sickness and David's sin, then David wanted to own that, and he wanted God to take it far from him. And yet, despite his humble contrition, verse 5, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die? And his name perished. Think about that. David's enemies were looking forward to the day of his death. The way a child looks forward to Christmas morning. Verse 6. And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. You, You hear what he's saying? He's saying, when an enemy comes to see me, he pretends to be my friend. He pretends to care. He pretends to listen. But as he listens, he considers what would be the most effective way to twist my words against me and then stab them in the back, stab me in the back with them. 
And David's enemies resembled Satan in this way. What does the devil do? He takes God's words and he twists them in order to blacken God's character. Verse 7, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. That is, my enemies, they comfort one another by fantasizing about the worst case scenario for my life. Verse eight, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Anyone would think, wouldn't they, that the man who considers the poor and the man who has a heart after God's own heart would be celebrated in the world. And yet such is rarely the case in an antichrist world. This past week in, in preparation for this message, I came across this story. It says in January 1991, Christian author Randy Alcorn and several dozen others went on trial for peacefully protesting outside an abortion clinic. Judge James Ellis was clearly hostile to the pro-life defendants at various times. He exploded with red-faced anger at defense witnesses or read his post while they testified. Alcorn explains what happened next. The time came for Judge Ellis, who had been so overtly hostile towards us during the trial, to give his final instructions to the jury before sending them away for deliberations. His final words were, you must find these people guilty and you must punish them sufficiently to ensure they'll never do this again. And for our totally peaceful, nonviolent actions, the jury awarded the abortion clinic $8.2 million. Well, you think about that vicar who recently wrote to his bank to protest their pro-trans marketing ploy and was rewarded by having his bank account closed down. There he is, he's just seeking to stem the tide or put an end to those who wanna do irreversible damage, mutilation to those who, who are mentally ill. And he was rewarded by being turned away as a customer. But in David's case, the situation was way worse because Unlike for David, his enemy wasn't a stranger like Judge Ellis or a bank manager. No, 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 his enemy was a friend. A friend who had betrayed him. And so the knife lodged in David's back was being held there by a close friend, probably Ahithophel. David's counselor who had betrayed David for Absalom's cause. And friends, these are the depths to which Jesus descended. In John 13, we read, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. 
Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. The heel that Jesus had washed was lifted against him. Had Jesus been fooled? Was Jesus taken off guard and horribly shocked by Judas' actions? No, Jesus had planned this betrayal in order for traitors like us to be forgiven. Jesus chose Judas knowing exactly what would happen so that he could forgive our treachery of him. Friends, let's bear that in mind the next time we find ourselves in Psalm 41 and are betrayed by a friend. If Jesus washed the heel that was lifted against him, then who are we to hold a grudge? Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his mercy delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgive then your brother from your heart. So there's the blessing uh, on the benevolent. There's the curse of the callous. And then last of all, there's the request of the righteous. Look at verses 10 to 13. It says, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And so despite the psalmist's disappointed soul as he considered the disconnect between what God had promised and what he was experiencing, despite the sickness of his body, despite the enemies who surrounded him, despite his friends who had betrayed him, a request came bubbling up from within his soul, be gracious to me and raise me up. Well, following his betrayal 
and crucifixion. Jesus Christ, the blessed man of Psalm 41, was raised up. And when those arms in that tomb outside of Jerusalem began to twitch, and when his eyes that had been sealed shut with blood opened wide, and when his crucified feet planted themselves on the ground, Jesus crushed the devil's head so that now Jesus' enemies can no longer shout in triumph over him because Jesus Christ has conquered. That's why we sing, Thine be the glory, conquering, risen, conquering Son. Endless is the victory, thou over death has won. And so if you are united with Christ, friends, remember this, his victory is your victory. We are upheld, and we will be upheld, not because of our integrity, but because of his integrity. And since his integrity is perfect, our victory is perfect too. It's why Paul could write to Christians whom he had never met before, In all these things, in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, or in the Psalm 41 disconnect of our lives, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and therefore, our future is bright because we are united with him. We've been raised with Christ, and we are therefore set in God's presence forever. So friends, by all means, do what David does here in Psalm 41. Bring your complaint to God. Leave nothing unsaid. Pour out your bruised and broken soul until there's nothing left to pour out, but then do this. Lift up your eyes to where Christ is seated and see the crown on his head and the scepter in his right hand and his robes that are dipped with the blood of his enemies and understand that as he is, so are we on earth. Why? Because we are one with him, inseparably joined, forever united to Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you are not yet a Christian, when David prayed at the end of verse 1, uh, at the end of verse 10, rather, raise me up that I may repay them, he is referring there to his enemies, which means if you will refuse the call of Christ, if you will refuse to repent and to believe the gospel, he will repay your unbelief with judgment. And there will be a literal hell to pay. So turn then now to the blessed man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray together and we'll stand.